So I had a friend ask me to go to um, a movie earlier this week, um, which I had already been to. I had already been to see Star Trek, okay, Into Darkness. He said, uh, you're going to enjoy it so much more the second time. Well, while I'm sitting there with him in the theater, he told me that he'd seen it five times already. And, and um, you know, he's mouthing the words before the lines come out of the actor's mouth. He knows it that well. It, you know, the problem with going to a movie for the second time is um, you know the ending. It, it takes away all the sense of anticipation, all the angst, and it, it kind of becomes mundane, and you start looking for all the things that you didn't um, catch the first time around. And I find that to be true with a study in, like, the book of Ephesians when we look at spiritual warfare is that we know the ending. We, and if you grew up in church, you especially know where it's going. You know Jesus is victorious, and we know the end of the story. And so it, it kind of becomes a mode in which we check out, and it becomes yawn factor. And, and then we begin looking for things that maybe we didn't see the first time. And we try and catch those little nuances that might spark our interest again. As opposed to remembering that God won the victory and we are still in a battle, and he's got the equipment to help us for the battle. That's, that's the more important focus of this. And when we sing a song like, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, it becomes kind of mundane, like seeing the movie for the second time, or the third time, or the fourth time. I, I'm just curious. I, I've asked this question in each of the services so far. Anybody here that's never heard that song, A Mighty Fortress is Our God? One, two, three. Okay. I asked that question last night. There was like 20 people who'd never heard it. Okay. And, and for those who've grown up in church, well, you grew up in church, so you know the song. But if church is not your background, or you, maybe you weren't in the type of church where they sing that song, it, it wouldn't be familiar to you. Well, last night, Mackenzie was here with me. It's our, our youngest, uh, my youngest daughter. Lori and I have four kids, and Mackenzie was standing next to me. And during the song, I leaned over next to her and I said, do you, do you know this song? And she smiled and she said, I don't think so. Didn't we do it like at a funeral one time? <laughs> and, and I said, yeah, I think um, and we probably did. And, and I, I think she was thinking back to my mom's funeral. And um, I, I said, other than that, do you know it at all? And she said, not really. So last night during the service, I kind of called her out and I began speaking directly to her because she didn't know, so I'm going to tell her what maybe some of you don't know. That song um, can become so much like the movies that we see in rerun form in that it becomes so old hat and unfamiliar unless you're the one who actually lived through the battle. And when Martin Luther, I'm not talking about Martin Luther King, um, Martin Luther wrote that song in 1527, it was because he had been locked away in a fortress Now, mind you, he had gone on trial. He dared stand against the Roman Catholic Church and say that salvation was through faith in Christ alone and not by works. So when he did that, he put himself in opposition against the Pope because at that time, the Catholic Church had a system of selling indulgences by which people could buy certain things in order to perhaps purchase themselves or family members out of hell, as though you can buy someone out of hell and God needs your money. So Martin Luther took that very fact of uh, faith is by faith in Christ alone and not by works lest any man would boast, and he took it to court. 
and he actually was put on trial for his life because he was considered a heretic, that he would dare begin to teach people something contrary than what the church in Europe at that time was teaching. So as he began pushing this issue, um, they decided to kill him and burn him at the stake. So he was put on trial in this city in Germany, and while he was on trial, he wasn't necessarily found innocent, but because he was becoming so popular, he was the beginning of the Reformation, um, the Catholic Church and those who were putting him on trial decided, we can't kill this guy, Um, we'll just hope that he goes away and will overpower him. Well, when he left the trial, he's headed back to his village, he's put in the back of a wagon, and uh, he's under armed guard because people wanted to assassinate him. Well, he gets a few miles outside of where the courtroom scene was taking place, and he's kidnapped. Um, This group of guys run up on horses, they put a black veil over his head, and they tie him up, and they throw him on a horse, and they haul him away, and they lock him in a fortress. Now, he knows that people want to burn him at the stake. They know, he knows that he's, he's been in the midst of this great battle for declaring the name of Christ and who Jesus is. And when he gets to this high tower, this fortress, and they lock the door behind him, one person steps in the room with him and pulls the veil off from his head, and he sees it's one of his closest friends. They had actually kidnapped him to protect his life. And they had staged the kidnapping to make the assassins who were further down the trail believe that someone else got him before they could. So he's locked away in this high tower and he sits down and he begins to write, a mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. And he begins to call out what he recognizes to be true about this battle that we're in the midst of because he knew where the battle was really coming from. Now, I want to frame that conversation that I just presented to you by thinking in terms of what Jesus did when he arrived on planet Earth in helping us to understand this battle. So think with me this way. Jesus, when he arrived, first century, did everything, absolutely everything, that God said would be done when the Messiah arrived. He's raising people from the dead. Blind people are seeing. Deaf people are hearing. The mute are speaking. Nothing like it has ever happened on the surface of the earth before or since. And Jesus, in the midst of all this time declaring who he is, begins to focus people on what's really going on. And he uses language like this that I want you to see on the screen. Matthew 11, verse 12. Jesus speaking. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been forcefully advancing and forceful men lay hold of it. So he's using battle language. So when Jesus uses battle language and he says something's forcefully advancing, we want to ask ourselves, advancing against what? What is he talking about? Well, he uses battle language again in Matthew 16. See this one on the screen. I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So why bring hell into the picture as a contrast to what he's doing through his church? Clearly, he's talking about his church, the church universal. He's talking about all the believers in Christ, the most enduring organization on earth. Nothing has outlasted it. Not the Romans. Nothing has lasted more than the church. Everything else has come and gone. Empires have risen. Emperors have risen. Nations have come. 
Corporations have come, and like Enron, they're gone. They vanished. Empires vanish. Corporations vanish. But the church and His Word remains. So think this way. He could have said, Rome will not prevail against my church. It was the most powerful empire in the world at that time. He could have said, Caesar Domitian will not prevail against me. He could have said, China will not prevail. Heretics will not prevail. He could have said, the spiraling downward behavior of humanity will not prevail. But he said, hell will not prevail against me. So, just to make sure we're all on the same page, God knows all, right? God knows all, right? Okay, God knows all. So, therefore, God knows the greatest threat to the activity of God is not the activity of man or mankind. It's not governments, it's not corporations, it's not the leaders of governments, but rather it's the warfare that's rooted in the advancement of satanic strongholds. God knows that. And He knows that you stand in the midst of a great battlefield, even if you can't see the swords flailing around you. I personally think the church needs a little bit of rocket fire going off around it, just to remind us we're in the midst of a battle. The ancient saints understood this. That's why Martin Luther wrote these words. Look at them again up on the screen. A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. Our helper he amidst the flood of mortal ills prevailing. Look what he calls out. For still our ancient foe. See, he understood. It wasn't the guys waiting down the trail to burn him at the stake. It wasn't even the people in the courtroom who wanted to sentence him to death that brought the battle. He understood it's this ancient foe. And he seeks to destroy us. So what was true in the first century when Jesus was here on planet earth and began talking about the battle was true 40 years later when Paul began to write to these people at this church in Ephesus. It's still true in 1545 when Martin Luther King, Martin Luther, sorry, was, <laughs> was locked away in that stronghold and began to write. A mighty fortress is our God is still true in 2013. So you see this thread emerging. If the battle is real, and if the enemy is real, if the destruction is real, I want to know if the one who is the very adversary of God can bring so much destruction to my life that he could bring me harm if I'm not properly equipped with the equipment that God has declared he's already provided. So here's the problem. As I look at the church today, I see a whole lot of people that are not showing up at the equipment room where God says, hey, I'm the equipment room manager and I've got plenty of equipment to give out. There's just not enough people asking for it. So we're not going to the supply room and asking for Him to suit us up. When He says, I've got it. I've got what you need. So look with me at verse 13 of Ephesians chapter 6. And we're going to look at two pieces of the armor this morning. Very specifically, He tells us what we need to put on. Verse 13, chapter 6, it says, Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. And when he starts off with this word, therefore, he's making a, a mental assumption. Therefore, if you've listened to everything that I've said, he's saying all the things that we've talked about through this letter, therefore, because of all those things, you've got to take up the full armor of God. Because of this megas battle that you're in, there's steps you have to take. 
I've listed in your notes this morning, you'll see it on the screen as well, three very specific steps that Scripture says we have to take. And the first one is based on that word, therefore, we've got to get our head in the game. We've got to be aware. How many times when you were athletes, if, you've, if you grew up through school and you played in athletic competition, did your coach ever say to you, get your head in the game? Well, that's what Paul's doing here. He's saying, get your head in the game, therefore, because of this battle. Here's the way that Peter said it, 1 Peter 1.13. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Now, that's very consistent with what Jesus said. Jesus said it this way in Luke 12.35. Stay dressed for action. In other words, be on the alert because your enemy is prowling around you. So number one, get your head in the game. Number two, get your equipment. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. What does it mean to get our equipment? When he says, put on the full armor of God. Here's why. We talked about it this very end of the last week's teaching. First and foremost, the battle is not yours. The battle is God's. It's his battle that we're in the midst of. We're unwilling. We've been drawn into this because we align ourselves with Jesus. And therefore, by default, we're brought into this battle because we've aligned ourselves with the king. So the battle is the Lord's, and it can only be fought through God's power and with God's armor because Satan is this incredibly unparalleled, wicked individual. And he seeks to impede Christ's return. Everything that you see in the way of satanic activity on planet Earth, whether it's what we call little white lies or the great big deceptions that we see going on in the planet, is for one reason. It's because Satan seeks to throw off God's plan because he knows his doom is sure, just like Martin Luther wrote. He understands. He can read Revelation just like you can. He knows that his future is the bottomless pit, the lake of fire. And everything that he can do to bring harm to you or harm to God's plan hopes to put off the timing of him being sentenced to the lake of fire. So he brings unprecedented fierceness against God's people trying to thwart God's plans because he knows his doom is sure. Now there's several ways that Satan attacks and specifically here in 2013 I can identify a few of them that are very obvious and they're in your notes this morning and I'm going to put them on the screen as well because this is really consistent with his activity. Here in, in our day and age we would say he's very direct in some of his attacks and he's indirect in others but here's the first one. He tries to reproach God's character. He did it with Adam and Eve. Think about the Garden of Eden. Did God really say that you cannot eat of the fruit of the tree? God knows that in the day that you eat of it, you will be wise, your eyes will be opened, and you're going to be like God. What's he doing in that moment when he has that conversation with Adam and Eve? He's reproaching the character of God by saying, can you really trust him? Because here's what God's trying to do. God's trying to keep you from being as great as you really can be. So he's holding back from you. Now, that's consistent with what he did with Jesus. And we're told that according to Scripture, in the 40 days of temptation, when Jesus is led into the wilderness, that at the very end, at the pinnacle of the battle that Jesus was having with Lucifer, at that moment, Satan said to him, let's go up on this really, really, really high tower. And taking him up to the high tower, he said, throw yourself off, because according to God's Word, the angels themselves will bear you up on their wings before you smash into the ground. How did Jesus respond to that? Do not tempt the Lord your God. What was Jesus' response for that reason? It was because God had already made a declaration of who He was and what He can do. 
He didn't need to be tested by Satan. But Satan was testing the character of God. He's trying to bring reproach, and he does that in your life. He tries to get you to distrust the character and the nature of God. So this one who himself is not worthy of trust seeks to convince us that the one who is worthy of trust is not worthy. That's Satan's motive. Here's the second thing that I see him doing. He tries to undermine victory by generating distress in your life. And he can bring that in many forms. He makes life really, really difficult to tempt you to forsake God, especially those of you who are on the front line. And New Hope is, is full of many people who are on the front lines of Christian battle, whether you do it vocationally or bivocationally. And you understand what it is to come under that struggle. And his most extreme tactic is persecution. And it might be financial. It might be relational. It, it might be emotional. And it also could be physical. That's his strategy. And here's the interesting thing about that that I find for believers. Many people find their faith strengthened by the very struggle that Satan takes them through and come out on the other side stronger for God's kingdom. Now here's the third way. He attacks through confusion and biblical deviation. And I'm speaking specifically when he attacks Christians because that's who he primarily attacks. He doesn't need to attack non-believers. They're not a threat to him. So when he attacks believers, many times it's untaught Christians because they're easy prey and they're vulnerable to false ideas about the things of God and who God is. So he continually attempts to convince Christians that Scripture is irrelevant and it's not applicable to our life. Or here's one of his favorite ones. It really is too hard to understand, so don't bother reading it. That's a temptation from Satan. Here's a fourth way that he does it. He attacks by causing division. And it's an old military technique. Divide and conquer. That's why Jesus prayed so much for unity among the church. Because he knows we're in this battle and we've got this enemy who wants to divide and conquer and bring disunity. And here's the fifth way. He attacks by persuading us to trust in our own resources. Uh, Last night after the Saturday night service, I hung around out in the parking lot for about 20 minutes to a half hour talking with an individual who was here who asked a a really probing question. Um, She said, can we actually experience what it's like to be in the midst of the battle because we live with this? We're comfortable. We've got everything that we need. So we're so strong in our own resources. How do we know what it's like to really trust God in the midst of a battle? Because we've never been locked away in that high tower like Martin Luther. We've never been threatened with our life being burned at the stake. How can we get to that point? Well, that's one of Satan's temptations, to get you to trust in your own resources and try and do God's work in your own power. Now, that's why Paul wrote, put on the full armor of God, because you frankly don't know from which angle he's going to attack. You don't know if it's going to come to you from financial means or from physical means. We don't exactly know where, when, and how he's going to bring it, but he's going to bring it. So we're told in verse 13, you put on the full armor of God so that you be able to resist in the evil day. What is the evil day? Well, for one, ever since the fall of man is the evil day, for one, for sure. Every day that we live in, planet Earth is surrounded by the power of Satan. So we're in the midst of the evil day and it continues to be evil until this usurper is thrown into the lake of fire at the final judgment. But this statement here specifically speaks to this issue. When things are at their worst, when you feel as though hell is coming against you, 
in that moment, you're going to be able to resist in that evil day because you've got on the full armor of God. So he sums it up by saying, and having done everything, stand firm. As a matter of fact, if you don't mind writing in your Bible, there's three times he says, stand firm, stand firm, stand firm. And that's code for, don't move. He's got you right where he wants you. God has you in that place where he can use you. Don't move. You're in that place where victory has already been accomplished. So the third one here is, first of all, we said get our head in the game. The second one was get your equipment on. And this third one is we have a responsibility. And our responsibility is to resist and stand firm. Now that's a little bit different than what we ended with last week. When we first saw stand firm, I told you it was the Greek word histeme. And that means holding the ground where Christ has already accomplished victory. But he adds something here. This time he adds, stand firm and resist. And that changes the meaning of the word. The word stand firm and resist is now not just histame, it's anthistame. Which means when the opposition comes against you, you're not just holding the ground, but you're holding the ground in the midst of a battle. When the force is pushing against you, not just standing on ground where victory's already been accomplished, but also against this approaching onslaught. Jesus' brother James, his half-brother, wrote this, James 4, 7, resist the devil and he will flee from you. He used the exact same word, anthistome. So we're not supposed to test Satan. We're not supposed to experiment with him or dabble in this thing called spiritual warfare. Rather, we're supposed to resist. How do we do that? We do it the same way that Jesus did. Jesus used the word of God against the attack of Satan. When Satan said, throw yourself on the ground and see if you're killed before the angels pick you up, he said, do not tempt the Lord your God. It is written. It is written. It is written. That was his constant response to Satan. So 1 Peter, we see 1 Peter 5, 8, Peter said something very, very similar. He said, be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour, but resist him firm in your faith. You've been to the zoo and seen the animal behind the cage called the lion, that big carnivorous creature that they've referred Satan as being a resemblance to? If you happen to be at the zoo when a lion is not sleeping but on the prowl, it's a fascinating thing because that lion sees you on the other side of the wall and he's thinking, I want to eat you. And this is what he does because I've been at the zoo. His eye never comes off you. And he sees that delectable little morsel called a human man on the other side and he keeps prowling back and forth thinking, how am I going to get through that glass? I want that guy. Well, in our life, according to what Scripture tells us, this equipment that we put on allows us to stand firm and resist against this one who's on the prowl against us. And that glass that's protecting us is the Word of God. It's God's equipment for us when we can equip ourselves with the truth of God's Word. I believe, and I understand from Scripture, every follower of Jesus, every single one of us, faithful to God's Word, can stand firm in the midst of the attack. So you stand firm when you know what is true about God. And that comes from knowing His Word. You stand firm when peers push you in the opposite direction. You stand firm when society mocks you. You stand firm when you're tempted to cheat. Now here's the issue. The issue is when the smoke of the battle fades away and the fog 
clears off the battlefield, will you still be standing firm on the midst of the battlefield? Or will you have wandered away into the fog of the woods with some people who have just lost their ability to fight? I bet, like me, you've known Christians who have wandered away, who in the midst of the battle said, it's just too hard, I'm out. Or they've fallen prey to Satan's attacks and they've disappeared into the fog of the woods. And you wonder, how did that happen? How is that possible that someone that I stood alongside on the battlefield with walked away? But at some point, typically here's the same reason everybody is consistent in this one. At some point along the way, they take off God's armor. And so taking off God's armor, they lose courage and they lose power and the desire to stand firm. Uh, The truth this morning is that there's forgiveness in Jesus. And for anyone who's done that and wandered away, Jesus will forgive and Jesus will take back. Anyone who's willing to confess, we'll, we'll get back to that later. Verse 14 says this now, Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Let's talk about these two pieces of equipment. Girded your loins. Now, this is a very familiar image to the people of the first century, especially for the Roman soldiers. If you belong to the Legion of Rome as a fighting individual, you were given a garment called a tunic. And the tunic was essentially a large square piece of fabric that the soldier had the responsibility of getting from the equipment manager, which would have a hole cut in the top of it through which they would punch their head. And two holes cut in the sides through which they would punch their arms. But this long piece of fabric hung down to their knees, just draped over their body. And it's what gave them protection from the weather, from the elements. It was their primary piece of clothing. Uh, Here's the difficulty for a Roman soldier. When they're wearing this tunic and they go into battle, they found it to be cumbersome. So every single Roman soldier had a very large leather belt, five or six inches wide, which they wrapped around their waist And not only did it hold the tunic together in place, but when they went to battle, they had to pick up the tunic and wrap it up around and tuck it into the leather because that tunic flaring around would impede their ability to run or their ability to swing their arms. So they gathered up all the loose fabric and girded their loins, tucking it into this belt. So before battle, they're tucking in this heavy tunic. Now think in terms of like a runner. A person who likes to run and maybe they do it just for sport or they compete, before they go into a race, typically a runner will shed themselves of any excess clothing that they don't absolutely have to wear. Romans were the same way. When they went into battle, they had to shed what would encumber them. So this belt, Paul says, that you're going to gird yourself with, when you're going to gird your loins with the belt of truth, this belt held everything together. It held it all in place. So girding the loins was really a mark of preparation. Every Roman soldier approaching the battle lines knew they had to stop at some moment and together they would pick up the tunic and would gird their loins and tuck it in. And what happened? They're ready for battle at that point. So what that really means is we're preparing our minds. It's a mark of preparation. We're demonstrating a readiness for war by getting equipped with truth. So Paul uses this word aletheia for truth. And Aletheia, you'll see it in your notes and on the the screen as well, but this one really is talking about the content of that which is true. We have God's Word here, and we would say God's Word is truth. What this is really talking about here in Aletheia is not the, the sum total of God's Word, but the content of God's Word. Like, I will never leave you or forsake you. That kind of truth. 
that Jesus is capable of defeating sin and death, that kind of truth. It's the content of the truth that's contained within here. So when we gird ourselves with this belt of truth, we're talking about taking the content of God's word and making it part of our being. Now, the next thing that we're told here that we're supposed to put on is the breastplate of righteousness. And he uses a very familiar image because no Roman soldier would ever, ever, ever go into battle without wearing their breastplate. And you've probably seen the images before yourself, but the breastplate of righteousness is literally a metal shield that was formed to the shape of the chest and the stomach. And it started at the collarbone, and it would go all the way down to the base of the abdomen, covering the thorax area, everything that was vital to a person to live. So we're talking about covering the heart and the lungs, the liver, the kidneys. Many times it wrapped around the back. Sometimes it was made of chain mail, but in Paul's day and age, it was a metal shield that was formed to the shape of the body by which a Roman could protect his inner being. So that's a very familiar image to them, but think with me that Paul was not just a Roman citizen, he was also a Jew. He was a Jew, a Pharisee of Pharisees, we're told. And in the Jewish ancient way of thinking, this area right here, your gut, was the seat of emotions, of your mind, of your feelings. And the ancients arrived at that feeling, or at that knowledge in their thinking, because when people were in emotional distress, many people, their gut hurts. And so they felt that the, the stomach, this area, the bowels, was the seat of your emotions and your mind. Well, what are the two arenas where Satan most fiercely brings the battle? To the mind. Uh, we would say in modern America, it's here. Well, for Paul, it's here. So when we're talking about putting on the breastplate of righteousness, we're putting, talking about putting on something that's going to protect our mind and our thinking and keep our emotions from getting swayed. When I was in flight school uh, back in my college days, we were always taught not to trust our emotions or our feelings when we got into critical situations. Those of you who are pilots know exactly what I'm talking about, but it, it, it essentially you can get what's known as spatial disorientation. You might be in the midst of clouds and you think you're flying straight and level or in a storm and you trust your feelings, but your feelings will betray you because your instruments will tell you, no, you're actually flying crooked. And in the case of like John F. Kennedy Jr., when he died 10, 15 years ago, he, it was found that he didn't trust his instruments and he was flying upside down and dove into the ocean because of spatial disorientation. Our, our emotions, our mind will sometimes deceive us. And Paul understood that when he wrote this about putting on this breastplate of righteousness. And, and literally, we, he, we understand that Satan has at his disposal this world system that he's developed over thousands of years, over millennia, and this sinful atmosphere we live in. And what he would like to do with what he's developed is cloud your mind. He wants to deceive you. He wants to snatch the Word of God from your mind. And He provokes us. He provokes us to laugh at sin. And eventually we get to the point where He seduces us so much we become so used to sin, it no longer bothers our conscience. So this breastplate of righteousness is to protect us against those attacks, against Him coming against our mind. So this breastplate that we put on is a spiritual piece of armor that is literally, we're talking about practical righteousness lived in obedience to God. Well, let me talk to you about the two forms of righteousness as I wrap this up. There's righteousness that was given to you at the moment of salvation. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, 
there was what is known as imputed righteousness. So at some point along the line, if you're a believer in Christ, you came before the Father and said, I need salvation. I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. God, will you forgive me and become my Savior? That is the moment at which God gave you what's known as imputed righteousness, something you couldn't earn on your own. It's a gift from God. But the other form of righteousness that Scripture talks about is practical righteousness. And that's the day in and the day out obedience that's related to this breastplate that we're talking about. Here's the way that John MacArthur summed it up. I want you to see his quote on the screen. Imputed righteousness makes practical righteousness possible, but only obedience to the Lord makes practical righteousness a reality. So this practical righteousness, this issue of obedience, is the working out of imputed righteousness in your life. I know you're going to be very familiar with this verse from Philippians 3, but this was something Paul struggled with, just like you do. Let me show you what he said on the screen, Philippians 3.12. Not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on in order that I may lay hold of it. He's talking about practical righteousness, that obedience, wearing that breastplate day in and day out. Uh, There is a mistake in our society today, especially among Christians. American Christians presume on their imputed righteousness. We're good with salvation through faith, through Christ. And and most people are good at that point and just say, that's that's good, I'm in the kingdom. I'm good for the rest of my life. No danger there. And so occasionally I meet Christians who have that form of thinking who also will say, well, it doesn't matter how I live my life. Because my sins past, my sins present, my sins future, they're all forgiven through Jesus. So it doesn't really matter how I live. I will tell you that those individuals are the most vulnerable to the attacks of Satan. They're very vulnerable because it's presuming upon God's righteousness that he's giving you, and it's an unscriptural argument. That's why Paul wrote Romans 6.1. Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid! I don't ever want to get to that point. So there's a presumption um, that many people fall into that they don't need to seek after this daily obedience of the breastplate of righteousness to live in daily. So here's the very practical outworking of this. God supplies the standard. He sets the bar. God supplies the power to live in that righteousness. But we have to supply the willingness God himself clothes you in imputed righteousness through what Jesus did. But we've got to put on practical righteousness, and that's this issue of holy living. And it's critical to our life. It's very, very dangerous to think that we're free from any danger because we're vulnerable to attack when we get to that place. Imagining that you've mastered the walk with Christ to the point where you can just walk in your own power renders us very vulnerable that's why we have 1 Corinthians 10, 12. It says, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he falls. I want to be really clear as I end. Unholy living, godless choices in the life of a Christian does not rob you of your salvation, but it absolutely robs us of our joy. It can take it away from us. Now just think with me for a moment about David. King David, in the midst of his highest achievements walking with God, had an adulterous relationship with Bathsheba and murdered her husband Uriah. 
in that time frame, when God finally brought conviction to his life, that's when you see him falling on his face and saying, God, if it's possible, restore to me the joy of your salvation. His joy was gone. It's not that he wasn't still God's favored man. It's not that God didn't like him anymore. The joy was gone because sin had taken over his life. And that's so possible for Christians today to fall into that place where we become absolutely vulnerable to the attack of Satan because we think that we stand and that's when Satan comes against us. Uh, If you've got a loss of joy in your life this morning, if that's you and you can really identify with that, I'm here to tell you that at New Hope, there is no program and there is no method and there is no technique which can bring happiness to you. There is nothing that can restore to you that joy if you're unwilling to confront and forsake sin in your life. Those are known as spiritual strongholds, which are unconfessed sin. And I'm here to tell you that Jesus died to save us from every aspect of sin, both the penalty, meaning the long-term penalty of it, but also the presence of sin in your life. So what we're talking about is the get-on-your-face type of beg-God-for-cleansing-and-a-brand-new-beginning kind of holiness. That's the breastplate of righteousness that Paul said, you've got to fasten that baby all over your body, settle into it. So you gird yourself with truth, the truth of God's Word. You put on the breastplate of righteousness and you recognize that in my weakness, God is really, really strong. He's powerful in the midst of those moments when we feel the most vulnerable. And that requires confession on our part. So that's how I want to close with you this morning, that we would just come to that place where we ask God to help us identify, is there anything keeping me from being in the midst of the battle, being the greatest, fiercest warrior I possibly can? Would you pray with me? Let's, let's close that way. God, I, I pray for all of New Hope, for all of the services that were represented, and for those who will listen online and podcast this, God, that you would deal with each of us in our heart. Especially for those who feel like it's not possible for them to get to the place where they can be a warrior for you because they're so encumbered with sin. God, remind them you are the God who forgives and you are the God who restores. So we ask that you would do your work where you need to bring conviction, bring conviction. But Father, I recognize I'm talking to many people who also need to feel a sense of boldness. And that can only come from you and the working of your Holy Spirit. So after you bring conviction, Father, I ask that you would bring courage so that we we can really truly stand in the face of the enemy and stand firm and resist his attacks. And Father, we're necessary. Give us the courage to speak into the lives of others that we know that are struggling. Help us to be the one who would encourage them as well. God, send us out with your blessing for having been here this week. And I especially thank you for the dads here this morning for the representation they brought before their family that they want to be in church on this day. God, we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.